Hey Metalheads and Headbangers and Rockers, this is Doro Passion. I wish you a great new year and have a great time over Christmas. Rock on and keep metal alive and I hope I see you very soon. All the best to everybody. Hi, it's Don Dawkin and you're rocking on Iron City Rocks. want to wish everyone a happy new year and great holidays and we hope to see you on tour soon. Hey everybody, this is Rob Halford from Fight, wishing you all a crazy heavy metal Christmas and an insane, wild, manic new year. Hello and welcome to episode 255 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 255, we have an opportunity uh, to listen in on a press conference with TSO founder Paul O'Neill. The TSO, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, will be at the Consol Energy Center on the 13th, uh, which is coming up very, very soon. They're doing two shows, uh, I believe 3 o'clock and 8 o'clock or something. So um, if you have not had an opportunity to check out the TSO, um, I know many listeners to the show are obviously hard rock and metal fans uh, and might say, okay, this is kind of a fluffy Christmas show. Um, the TSO is certainly not a uh, fluffy Christmas show. Uh, in the tradition more of uh, KISS, I would say live, uh, complete bombastic spectacle, uh, visually, uh, sonically, you've got uh, incredible guitar uh, works Paul's arrangements just amazing so this is a press conference that Paul O'Neill did uh, before the tour started um, I was lucky enough to participate in the uh, call itself so we're going to listen in on that so you're going to be hearing uh, different media outlets from all over the country speaking with Paul O'Neill so before we get into that let's give you a little taste of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra So anyway, I mean, it's 15 years of it being a a touring operation. How is that? How does that feel? It's it's a little bit mind-boggling. Um, you know, <laughs> never could have imagined it would have gone on and gotten this big. And uh, and this year has just been particularly magical, just because you know um, 
we kicked it off, as you know, New Year's Day um, in Berlin at the Brandenburg Gate, and they said it was be between 900,000 and a million. And right before we hit the stage, a German stage manager came over and goes, Paul, I think we just crossed two million. And it was just sort of a great way to, it was surrealistic, just to look out at that sea of humanity. Um, for everybody there who's never been to Berlin, um, unlike Times Square or Trafalgar Square, Brandenburg is designed to hold, you know, millions. And uh, it was uh, just a great way to, you know, bring in the new year. And then we did the European tour. And um, the uh, and uh, from the Christmas trilogy, we never intended to do uh, the Christmas attic for 13 years in a row. It just kind of happened. You know, William Morris is, you know, like, Paul's not broken, don't fix it. We really didn't have a lot to guide us. The closest thing we had was Dickens, who wrote, you know, five books about Christmas, but and he made his biggest money in his life by reading them live. But they always, he always had to read a Christmas Carol. They would never let him do it, the Cricket and the Hearth or any of the other ones. And but you know, two years ago, I just said we're going to risk it. We did the Lost Christmas Eve, and that did phenomenally. But it set loose a deluge of you know fan mail saying, you know, when are you going to do uh, the Christmas Attic, which is the only uh, rock opera from the trilogy we've never done live, and. As I'm sure you know, most of uh, you reporters are aware, you know, musicians love writing albums. You love recording them. Of course, you love watching them go platinum. But it's not real until you play it, you know, in front of a live audience and you feel the energy of the audience back. And it basically creates an energy tape, you know, kind of tape loop. And um, it just takes the music to a level you simply, you know, couldn't do by listening to it alone, you know, on your stereo. And so we decided that we would um, debut. Uh, the Christmas attic this year, which would be the uh, the perfect way to um, end 2014. And our next question comes from Stephanie Schultz with Prez Enterprise. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, how are you? My question is, uh, how how you okay? The shows are such a a visual feast. It's, there's so much going on. They're so exciting. How do you keep upping the ante, or how do you keep it fresh? As Gary would know, a deep-seated fear of having to get a real job. Um, now, the uh, uh, one of the things, we've just been lucky in that um, technology has zoomed ahead so quickly in the last 10 years that um, we have our own division of um, Night Castle Management, which you know handles uh, Transiberian Orchestra. It's our own company. Um, and there's a division of young kids who their only job is to come up with new special effects and to make sure that we want them to be cutting edge. We always tell them all the same thing. Make believe you're working for NASA. We don't want you thinking rocketry or jet propulsion. We want you thinking transporter beams and warp. And if only one out of 100 ideas makes it to the flight deck, we win. And so we get a lot of ideas from in-house and then also um, – Every sound, every light company, every pyro company, um, every special effect company, um, you know, knows that um, that we're always looking for cutting edge stuff. And like when Michael Jackson canceled um, his tour, you know, God bless, because he passed away, um, you know, Pyrotech all of a sudden had ten, you know, lasers that they had built that did a really thick blue beam, which is the hardest laser beam to produce. They're unbelievably expensive, and they were kind of freaked because they were now stuck with these ten lasers. And I'm like, I'll take all ten. And so basically, every special effect company, every power company knows that if they come up with a really great special effect that's insanely expensive, 
there's one band dumb enough to buy it, and that's us. And the it's you know you love the look on the audience's faces, especially the kids when um, they see a new special effect that they've never seen before. And we need more than the ordinary band because, uh, as you probably are well aware, we have stages at both ends of the arena, and um, and it's and you can always tell the rookies in the audience just because um, they hear orchestra. They think 50 people in folding chairs, you know, you know, 200 lights on or off, and then all of a sudden this humongous prog rock, you know, production starts to put itself together, and we're off and running. Mm-hmm. And our next question comes from Jeff Neville with the Cleveland Scene. Okay. Cleveland Scene we know well. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, good, to, good to talk to you again. Um, tell me a little bit uh, – I was reading. I was reading the bio. It says you have one of maybe three records uh, coming out next year. Talk a little bit about what you have, what you've been doing in the studio, and what you think uh, is going to come out next year. Um, Romanoff is uh, when Kings Must Whisper uh, is about seventy five percent done. Um, Letters from the Labyrinth is probably ninety percent done, and um, Running the Passion of Fairy Tale Moon is you know just getting started so it's basically whichever one gets done first because um as i'm sure all you guys are aware uh you know writing a great song is only half the battle then you need to come up with you know the right vocalist to do the alchemy to bring it to life and um you know you see it um you know cat stevens great writer he wrote the first cut as deepest but when rod stewart sang it it became a hit i worship bruce springsteen you know he changed my life but um, and he wrote um, "Blinded by the Light," but Manfred Mann's vocal fitted a little bit better. Um, Patty Smith's, you know, um, "Because the Night Belongs to Lovers," um, you know, her voice fitted. And it's the same is true in movies. Um, you know, uh, originally for the Wizard of Oz, it was supposed to be Shirley Temple as Dorothy. They couldn't get her, so they had us go with their B choice, which was Judy Garland. And you know, now you can't imagine anyone else. Um, so basically. You know, we have all the tracks down, and we're going through the singers, and as we get the right singer for the right song, the neck is in the can, and the first one that's done um, gets turned in. And at this point, we have to turn it in by June um, because we have to go over to uh, play Wacken in uh, Germany uh, next summer. And our next question comes from Scott Mervis with Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Okay. Hi, Paul. Thanks for talking to us. Um, I was wondering if if you're amazed every day that you get people's grandmas to come see a metal show. It's actually that's a great question. Um, the we were kind of a we were kind of stunned at the beginning, you know, the diversity of the audience. Um, but um, and this is just my own pet, personal pet theory on this one. Um, around 2004, I got a call in the middle of the night from a uh, one of our promoters, who's a demographic nut, everybody knows that kept it, the kind of person that always has to know exactly who the customer is. And he called me in the middle of the night, and he goes, Paul, I just got your demographics back. You know, I'll give you 10 guesses. You'll never guess them. I'm going, it's really late. Can you just tell me? And he said, you've got every economic class from the extremely poor to the super rich. But he goes, here's the weird part. Your average age is 21. And I said, that's impossible. And he goes, nope. It's like a Lord of the Rings movie. So seven, eight, nine-year-olds cancel out the 60, 10, 11, 12, cancel out, you know, the 50, et cetera, et cetera. And honestly, that bothered me for like two weeks because it just didn't make sense. But this is just my own pet theory. 
Um, it was uh, TSO's second lucky break. Uh, the first lucky break was, I think we were the last band to have blank check um, artist development from the label system, Warner Brothers. Um, and the second lucky break was, um, again, a lot of uh, your average readers out there, you know, think bands like Pink Floyd, you know, Aerosmith, um, you know, Queen were all hits out of the box. No, they weren't. They were nurtured by the labels. And when TSO's first album came out, it did not sell. But, you know, Ahmed Erdogan and Jason Flom were like, Paul, you're on to something, keep going. We turned Beethoven's Last Night in in 99, and that's when we started to tour. And that's when the band exploded. And my personal theory was, again, being at the right place at the right time. Um, in 1949, when Les Paul and Leo Fender invented the electric guitar, there was a great schism in music. Um, you either grew up on the Dorsey Brothers and Perry Como, pre-electric guitar, or you grew up on Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, post-electric guitar. And for people pre-electric guitar, you know, PAs and electric guitars was just a noise. But by the time we started to tour in 99, it was now half a century later, and now it's, you know, 60-odd years later. So unless you're in your 90s, for the first time, every generation has rock in common. Even great-grandmothers are the Woodstock generation. So I think it made it way easier for us to jump the uh, generational gap than all the bands before us. And... Again, when you jump any of the silly walls people put between themselves, be it nationality, you know, be it economics, you know, whatever, it feels great. But when you jump to generation one, that feels the best. And there's something, you know, magical about, you know, watching a 15-year-old kid, you know, getting into an Alpatrelli guitar solo and his father's jamming out there with him. And, but again, I think that was just the fact that enough time has gone by that everybody has rock in common now which simply, you know, didn't exist, you know, when it was born, you know, in the 60s. And by the way, um, Eric, if anybody, if this turns to psychobabble, you know, tell them they can feel free to ask me to clarify it. Absolutely. And our next question comes from Alan Scully with Last Word Features. Well, hey there, Paul. How are you doing? Very good, sir. Good to hear, hear your voice again. Good to hear your voice again also. And yeah. where, should we, where would you like to start? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll kind of follow up sort of where we started, where you talked about Christmas Attic being a new production. This is really, I guess, Christmas-wise, the third different production you've done. And I guess I wanted to have you talk a little bit more about what goes into rehearsal and figuring out the, the special effects and the stage show each time you decide, you're going to take the dive and put a whole new rock opera out there as the main part of the show. It's, um, well, it definitely gets changed, you know, um, of course, arenas are totally different. And, um, you know, we we always have a narrator. So if somebody brings his girlfriend, um, you know, it's easy for him to follow the story. It's easy for her to follow the story. And... Um, the first half in America has always been a rock opera, and then the second half has always been a full-on prog rock concert. Um, but when we toured Europe last year, um, we decided to experiment, and that was the first time we ever did a tour without a rock opera, which basically just taking songs from all the different rock operas, kind of like The Who. We weren't breaking any new ground, but um, it went over phenomenally. And um, so one of these days, eventually, we'll be doing that in the States as well. But um, 
we didn't want to uh, do our first straight concert tour um, until we had basically done um, all the rock operas live. And, uh, you know, the Christmas Haddock was just simply, you know, staring us in the face. And, um, you know, like all my rock operas, you know, it's it has a happy ending. If you want sad endings, you don't need me, just read the paper. And especially because what the world's going through right now. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's about a kid who goes into an, an attic where people have been throwing things for decades, if not centuries. And anyone who's been in an old house with an attic knows it's filled with all kinds of treasures. And, you know, she discovers a trunk where she reads all these letters from the past that gives her glimpses and how the holiday affected people, you know, decades and centuries ago and a glimpse into the future. And, um, and it's, it's, um, of all the rock operas I've written, it's probably the lightest. It's more probably long, um, like uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, um, just because, uh, again, between what's going on in the world with, you know, ISIS and all these other things, I just want – people need escapism. And so we just wanted to give them, you know, a great escape story. And then um, and then the second half also we're going to be uh, showcasing um, some of the songs from the upcoming album too. Mm-hmm. And just a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. That will place you in the question queue. Our next question comes from Chuck Yarborough with the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Okay. Paul, thanks again for, for doing this. I think you're the guy. Plain Dealer, I think, was the first paper to ever review us, so it's, uh, <laughs> this is full circle. I love it. Go ahead. Well, cool. Um, you know, you kind of touched on this just a second ago, but each arena is different. So how much planning and stuff goes into adjusting the, the pyrotechnics and the stage props and, you know, who and what you're putting where for each each venue? How much of that has to be done? Oh, uh, it's, there's, again, I, I, I lost, I stopped counting after 360, but that's how many people are on the crew. And in TSO, um, we've always been very upfront about this. We consider the crew members band members. Um, they're the first ones in, the last ones out. Um, they are key in a lot of them have been with us since day one um, and you know we always agonize to keep the ticket prices you know between 25 and you know 70 um, so even with people adding fees you know shipping fees nothing ever goes over 100 um, but in 2008 when I think the show got up to 36 tractor trailers um, I'm sure a lot of you guys know the general rule in rock and roll is when a show gets to a certain size, you go to something called leapfrogging systems, where, you know, like when the Rolling Stones or U2 are playing one city, they'll have a a second system in the next city setting up. So in 2008, when we went to the moving trusses, et cetera, um, I said to Elliot, I said, we're going to have to go to leapfrogging systems. And Elliot, who's been with me since the 70s, said, Paul, you go to leapfrogging systems. There's no way you can be able to keep these tickets between 25 and, you know, $70. And he said, just trust me, I'm going to rehearse this crew so well, so tightly, that we'll be able to, you know, pull in at, you know, 5 a.m., set up in time to do two shows in one day, tear down in time to do two shows the next the next day. And I'm like, Elliot, this sounds like hubris. He goes, where's the trust? I don't hear any trust. And I'm like, okay. And to Elliot Solzman's credit, um, he, he did it. I mean, he just rehearses the crew so tightly as – he rehearses the crew as much as I rehearse the band. And, um, and you know, just a lot of nights before we have signed the last autograph, they have it all torn down, and they're on their way to the next city. 
and it's it's been a learning process as we've moved along too because um it was him and Adam Lind and Kenny Kaplan that also came up with the idea of um doing two, uh, two shows in a day because uh, Adam said, you know, Paul, you assume that everybody's like you and gets up at four in the afternoon. There's some people that actually have to get up in the morning. And he said, if you do a, you know, a three o'clock show, people don't have to say, do I sleepwalk to work the next day or do I skip TSO? So that's when we, you know, one year we tried like four or five, you know, matinees and it worked out so well. It's become um, part of the TSO tradition where, not only do we want to make it unbelievably affordable, but also we, we want to try to make it so it we fit people's schedule, people schedules. They don't have to like rework their lives to fit ours. And our next question comes from Jeff Wilkin with the Schenectady Gazette. Okay. Hey. How you doing, sir? Hey, Paul. Greetings from Schenectady. Uh, it's uh, I love Schenectady, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, been there a couple times. And uh, is it cold up there right now? Because I'm actually in Florida right now. Oh, we actually got like 70, 80 degrees, about oh 70, 70 today. It's beautiful out here, beautiful fall day. But I know that the holiday season is coming, and uh, we're going to be hearing a lot of TSO promos pretty soon, all about holiday-related stuff. Does it ever bother you that people might just think that these guys come out at the Christmas season and no other time of year? Um, no, because, um, you know, the whole plan when I first sat down with Atlantic, you know, um, as I said, you know, it's going to be a prog rock band, you know, a full symphony in the studio, not the whole symphony on the road, 24 lead singers, and we're going to do six rock operas, a trilogy about Christmas, and one or two regular albums. Um, they kind of rolled their eyes, but they wrote a blank check, um, and, you know, anybody in the entertainment industry, um, I mean, you know, knows that Christmas is the holy grail. Um, the uh, That's why most, you know, bands, you don't take on Christmas until you've had, you know, four or five other platinum albums. And we kind of hoped they would do well. We never dreamt they would, as William Moore said, you know, Paul, you've looked into Tchaikovsky meets um, A Christmas Carol. And um, I know what he meant. Um, Tchaikovsky just sort of the Nutcracker as another ballet, like Sleeping Beauty, um, you know, Swan Lake. Never dreamt it would be as interwoven into the holidays. And if you're an artist, be it a, a painter, uh, a book writer, a film uh, uh, maker, or, you know, a, a musician, if you're doing any other subject, you're competing with the best of your generation or the last couple of generations. If you're doing a painting... Um, any other subject, you can meet with like Andy Warhol, etc. You do something about Christmas, you're competing with, you know, Botticelli, Michelangelo, Norman Rockwell. Um, if you're doing, you know, a book, you know, you're competing with Charles Dickens. If you do, you know, a movie Frank Capra, music, forget it, you know, Tchaikovsky, you know, Mendelssohn, Beethoven. Um, and you're also competing against art that has to get past the ultimate critic, the only critic you can't fool, the only one that counts in the end, which is time, because every century only hands off the next century, what it considers the very best, and to be, I'd love to say that we planned this, we didn't plan it at all, it was an accident, it just kind of, um, it, it just shocked everybody that it, you know, um, you know, took on a life of its own, and then, uh, of course, the other side thing that came out of it was when that uh, gentleman, Carson Williams, uh, lit his house to, um, you know, 50,000 lights, and then somebody else the next year did 100,000, and then somebody else did 200,000, and the last house I saw was 2 million lights all going off to TSO music, 
And when you go to Disney World or MCM, MGM, all the lights were all going off to, um, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra music. Um, I think we're number one for uh, fireworks displays. And a friend of mine just got back from uh, Disneyland Hong Kong, and uh, he uh, he said he's in this uh, part of the park, and all the music was going off to Night Castle. And the uh, it's just weird. You just, again, could never would have predicted it, could never have planned it. It just, um, I just think it was all those prayers my mother said when I told her I wasn't going to college. She's like, please don't let this kid starve. Please don't let this kid starve. But, you know, so far, so good. And our next question comes from Amanda Gabaletto with Altoona Mirror. Okay, Hi, Paul. What's your name, by the way? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what are, what are you hoping the audience takes away from this show, The Christmas Attic? It's, um, you know, basically, um, you know, we want it to be just like an emotional roller coaster ride. And, you know, you, you come to the show, um, and, again, if you're having a great life, you know, you know, come add another great night to your life. If you're, if you're having some speed bumps in life, you know, leave the problems in the trunk of your car. No one's going to steal them, I promise. And if we do our job right, um, when you leave that arena, you know, you won't, number one, you're going to have a chance to recharge your batteries because no matter what's going on outside the arena, we're going to be throwing so many new songs to you, so many new special effects that, the only thing the brain can do is absorb what's coming at it. And while it's doing that, it can't be releasing stress hormones, which is so unhealthy. And um, so your batteries get a little chance to recharge. And um, and all our rock operas, you know, um, people run into problems in life, but at the end they always have happy endings. So if we do our job right, when you leave that arena, you won't think you're going to beat any of the problems you bump into in life. You'll know it. And... You know, basically, you know, that's the uh, the job of the arts. It's, it's to, um, you know, inspire people, you know, uh, give people, you know, escape when they need it, help them, you know, calm down when they need calming down, get them excited when they need to get excited. And it's also one of the things I love about progressive rock. Um, uh, uh, the um, when, uh, Greg Lake, uh, who to me invented progressive rock because he started King Crimson and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, just like Black Sabbath invented black, uh, heavy metal. Um, you know, one day when he did an encore with us, he said, you know, Paul, you really get progressive rock. I'm like, Greg, I have no idea what that means. He goes, progressive rock is the ultimate form of music. If you're in a blues band and you play jazz, it's no longer a blues band. You're a jazz band, you play reggae, it's no longer a jazz band. If you're in a reggae band, you play Strauss Waltz, it's, you know, um, no longer a reggae band. But progressive rock has no limits. It's built into the name, which is, um, why you could do classical, you know, theatrical, rock, blues. Um, why Rush on Spirit of the Radio can go from rock to reggae back to rock, and nobody says boo. And um, musically, as an artistic form, you know, progressive rock not only gives you the most freedom, it also has the best toys. Um, you know, because as I'm sure anybody who's seen TSO, you can obviously see them massively influenced by The Who, the rock opera, um, you know, bands like, you know, Queen, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, the marriage of, uh, you know, bringing the classics out to the kids, because a lot of kids won't listen to Beethoven and Mozart. But if you slip some of their songs into your songs, they're like, oh, that's Beethoven, they'll go check it out. And, again, to me, Mozart was the world's first rock star. You know, live like a rock star, die painless like a rock star, die young like a rock star. 
and Beethoven was the world's first heavy metal rock star. Because when you think of the Fifth Symphony, da 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 dum, if, you know, ever since Led Zeppelin had written that riff, they would have believed it. And he also went deaf early, like a heavy metal rock star. And, um, and also, when I saw the uh, Pink Floyd Pulse tour in the 90s, um, they were the ones that, you know, they, they were very kind to give me front row seats, but they also, I had professional curiosity. I wondered what it looked like from the nosebleed. So I went all the way to the back, and it was just as great. And it was from Pink Floyd that I learned, as long as you didn't give a damn about the budget, um, you could do a show where there was no such thing as a bad seat. Um, the back is more cinematic. Um, up front is cool because, you know, you can see the sweat dripping off, you know, the guitar player's, you know, hands as he's doing the solo. But um, it's just very important to the band that everybody walks away saying, ah, oh, my boyfriend took me to see TSO, but we, you know, we're in the nosebleed, or dad took us to see TSO, but we were behind the stage. That's why Trans-Siberian Orchestra never sells behind the stage, never sells obstructed view, and it's just super important to us that we watch the fans' money ten times more than we watch our own money. And, um, you know, and so far it's, it's worked out. And, Paul, we have a question that we received via email from Cindy Landrum of the Greenville Journal. Okay. And her question is, uh, every kid at one time has snuck into the attic or closet at Christmas time to look for presents or treasures. Talk about how universal that story is. I think that's pretty universal for every kid that grew up in America. I mean, I did it, and it's um, the uh, – and um, – you know, I, you know, obviously, because you know, I grew up in New York City, and um, you know, every once in a while they'd be tearing down old apartment buildings before they would destroy them. You know, you would—I can say this now because it's—I'm past the statute of limitations. But you know, we, we used to break in and just explore these old buildings, and um, it's magical. You know, it's uh, when you look at something. You know, especially the buildings that were built over a hundred years ago. Um, it's. Uh, like when we filmed the uh, the Ghost of Christmas Eve, um, we did it at a Lowe's theater that was built in 1929 that they were going to tear down. Thank God they didn't, just because you couldn't recreate the artwork that was in that theater. And um, the uh, I love old places and I love old forgotten places. You know, um, you know, like that city Petra in Jordan. You could see it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I'm so jealous of the guy who was the you know the first person you know to be there in like a thousand years you know when he uh stumbled across it and uh, or the people that found the mayan cities and stuff like that um there's something magical about finding something that you know was big and beautiful you know a hundred or two hundred or a thousand years ago and to be uh somebody to rediscover it and um and obviously uh all of us can't be um you know harrison ford but um you know addicts uh, are or kids' little time capsules, and uh, and it's kind of you know cool what you can find in them. Thank you. No Once again, if you would like to ask a question or have a comment, please press star one on your telephone keypad. This will place you in the question queue. And our next question comes from Dave Richards with Erie Times News. Hey, Paul. Hi, Dave. How are you doing, sir? And we're, we're glad that you're back in Erie. Uh, we know we skipped you guys for a couple of years because of uh, the ceiling problems, but um, uh, it was great to be back last year, and we're great to be heading back this year. 
Hey, uh, you talked earlier about how you're, you're trying to top yourself and technical breakthroughs. The, the moving trusses were a big breakthrough. Uh, what can you tease us about for for 2014 as far as new and exciting bells and whistles we might see? It's um, we have uh, these new pyro um, uh, projection screens that they uh, they're building for us right now. Um, the uh, I'm still waiting for the uh, call that they work. Um, because that's the big scary thing. Um, we leave in about two weeks uh, for the Mid America Arena because you know we have to set this whole thing up for like four weeks and make sure that everything works. You know, um, there's no shakeout crews, there's no warm up tours, um, and since uh, and we have a, you know a lot of you know cutting edge lights. Um, and the main thing is just uh, not only that they work, but that they're roadworthy and. Um, you know, so the crew takes and bounces them around, and you know, sees if anything's going to you know shake loose. And and the other thing is, we we really like to break down the wall between the band and the audience, so everybody feels like they're part of the show. And like the pyro is one of those key things. That's why we have stages at both ends of the arena. And when a full pyro hit goes off, you just feel the heat roll across the arena. It's totally safe. Um, it's you know, it's like a roller coaster ride, the illusion of danger, but it's not. And it just, you know, makes the audience, you know, feel like they're um, they're part of the show, and um, and that's one of the reasons why we constantly have, you know, teenagers and young twenties join the band, you know, so they can run around the arena. So no matter where you're in the arena, at some point during that night, you know, there's going to be a musician, you know, right in front of you, and um, you're just going to feel like you were in the right place at the right time. And you know, we we agonize to make sure that, you know. Um, at one point during the show that everybody has a really personal one-on-one -on -one moment where they just feel like they have the best seat in the house. And our next question comes from Jim Abbott with Orlando Sentinel. Oh, I know Jim really well. God. Hey. Jim. Good. How are you, sir? Very good. Good to hear your voice, sir. You're down in Florida. I have uh, actually two quick questions. One has to do with, with the uh, uh, the cast and, and crew. Do you have much turnover? You've been doing this for a while, among the particularly among the musicians and the cast. And, and how hard is it to uh, to work new people in uh, on the on the creative side? And also, you talked about maybe moving your base of operation down somewhere in Florida. Uh, has that has that happened? Uh, we just bought a recording studio in Florida uh, last month. Um, oh. We basically kind of felt bad because um, you know, ten years ago, there was about, you know, eighty or ninety recording studios in Manhattan that I could use. You know, I would say ninety-eight percent of them are now bankrupt. Um, same thing in California, and um, and then I heard that they were going down in Nashville also. So um, we just decided we better buy one of these studios before they cease to exist. Um, because I know a lot of bands are. Um, it's funny. Uh, I won't say the band's name, but when we were touring Europe last year, we were doing a radio show, and you know the DJ said, um, you know, there's this other prog rock band, and their last five albums, you know, don't sound as big and as lush, you know, as TSO. You know, why do you think that is? And um, I'm like, I have no idea. And then he goes, do you think it's because they're recording it in their living room on Pro Tools as opposed to in a real studio? I'm like, interesting theory. <laughs> By the way, that is the reason. Um, you know, for, you know, pop albums, you, you might be able to get away with doing it 
in your house. But, you know, for big, you know, productions, you know, you need a real recording studio with great acoustics and, you know, multiple SSL boards. And um, the but with the death of the label systems and all these studios going out of business, um, we just decided if we want to make sure that we have a real studio, you know, for the next, you know, 50 years, um, we better buy it. So um, last month we bought it, and um, uh, everybody was scared I was going to have buyer's remorse the minute I signed the check, but zero buyer's remorse. And um, to be quite honest, uh, can't wait to uh, dive into it in January and uh, finish up the new album um, before we hit uh, the European uh, tour. All right, and our next question comes from Andy Gray with the Tribune Chronicle. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Very good. How are you doing? Just fine. I wanted to ask, I mean, how early in the kind of the writing and recording process do you start thinking about how you would like to present this music visually, and how has the vision for Christmas Attic evolved in the 16 years between when it was released and this first tour to present it in its entirety? It's uh, I mean, basically, TSO goes 365 days a year. It goes around the clock. Um, and the, the Christmas thing, it, it's 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 a curse and a blessing. I would definitely never give it up. Um, the only problem that we have with it is that, you know, normally in the rock industry, there's a rhythm. You know, you write an album no matter how long it takes, then you record it no matter how long it takes, and then you tour it for one to two years. And then you start the process over. Um, the Christmas rock operas became so successful that, you know, no matter what we're doing, when it starts to get near fall, you know, we close down the studio and, you know, start to put together these, you know, humongous, you know, Pink Floyd-sized productions. And, um, and it's, it's funny because we have a couple of Pink Floyd's crew members, and you know, one of them said to me, "He goes, Paul, you know, there's a reason why Pink Floyd only toured once, like every four years." And I'm like, "Yes, I know it, <laughs> and I'm learning the hard way." But uh, the again, as we, I think I mentioned before, um, we have been lucky with production, um, with computers, etc. Um, like, there's a lot of shows on Broadway. Um, I don't know if uh, you know. I love Andrew Lloyd Webber, but, you know, Phantom of the Opera or Cats, if we all got into a time machine and went back to 1914, we could produce those shows, and they would look exactly like they do in 2014. You can't go back five years and do a TSO show and have it look like it does now because um, just how, how quickly, you know, um, you know, new toys are, are, you know, coming out. And... Um, it's it's one of the exciting exciting things about the times, and and another thing we feel really lucky is just that we have um, such a loyal uh, following, and it's especially been noticed the last two to three years, where you know you'll bump into young couples with their kids who say, we first saw you in high school as teenagers on a date, and now here they are back married with their own kids, and you know hopefully that tradition will keep going. So that in, you know, X number of decades when I'm in the old rocker's home with the nurses going, do we have to hear these stupid stories again? These kids will keep this thing going and maybe they'll let me backstage. Right. And just a reminder, if you would like to ask a question or have a comment, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. That will place you in the question queue.
Our next question comes from Wes Woods with the Inland Valley Daily Bulletin. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, thanks Hi. so much for uh, doing this. It's no, been really great. No, totally our pleasure, and I appreciate everybody here's patience. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, honestly, most of my questions have been asked, um, but there is one that someone else asked that I was curious um, a, about that I don't think you had gotten to, and that was, um, do you have a lot of turnover in, in your uh, bands, and, and how do you prevent that from, oh, from happening? You're yeah. Right. That was asked before, and I really didn't answer properly. Um, okay. Uh, band is very stratified. There's teenagers, 20s, 30s, 40s. I'm the only one approaching 60. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, people like Al Petrelli, who was in Alice Cooper, Asia, Megadeth, you know, Jessica Soto, who was in Big Mousing Journey, you know, Roddy uh, Chong, who's in Tania Twain, they bring all the little tricks of the trade, you know, to the stage. Um, and But the kids and, you know, anyone between, you know, 18 and 25, we call the kids, they just bring this youthful exuberance um, and they don't let anyone become jaded, um, and it's infectious. And uh, um, and it's another good thing about I, I, I like about the band is, you know, like Al Petrelli is not just a great guitar player, and same with Joel Hofstra, um, who is in um, Night Ranger, played with Foreigner, and, and he's in White Snake now. They mentor the younger kids. Um, they actually go out of their way and. Um, and I've, I've worked with so many bands in my lifetime. Um, I've never seen a band uh, where egos are like checked at the door, and you know everybody um, wants the other person to, to steal the night. Everybody's like you know looking out for everybody else, and it really does work as a team. And the other thing, PSO is designed to breathe um, because um, when I started the band. Um, I, I wanted to correct um, what I saw as a lot of flaws that were built into rock that were uh, everybody was so used to that um, they just assumed it was the way it had to be. Um, the first one was um, in the old days, if the label system broke a rock band, um, be it a rock band, a prog rock band, a metal band, whatever, they expect you to tour, and by that I mean, you know, 11 months on, a month off, 11 months on, a month off, um, you know, five to six shows a week, two hours a night, and um, the human voice is not meant to sing on top of Marshalls for two hours a night, you know, five nights a week. Um, and about 15 years ago, I was going with, uh, there was a friend of mine from a big band um, who was having a node operation um, for uh the reporters who don't know what that is, it's when you get a callus on your vocal cords. And the doctor said to me, he goes, Paul, I don't get your industry. And I'm, what do you mean? He goes, human vocal cords, it doesn't matter how big the guy or the girl is, they're just thin tissues. And if you sing on top of them, especially, you know, screaming on top of marshals, it's not a matter of if you're going to destroy these guys' voices, it's a matter of when. And, um, and I'm sure you guys won't have to think long if you can think, you know, I can name dozens of singers that used to have great voices who no longer can sing. And so with TSO, one of the reasons we have so many singers is when we record the albums, if I need a great whiskey dust voice like Joe Cocker, I have it. If I need a great high soprano, I have it. When I do the big choral numbers, I have enough vocals. Um, 
but when we tour live, um, no singer ever has to sing more than five songs a night. And that you can do to your 90, and you'll, so it's one of the rules in TSO, do no damage to the lead singers. And then the other thing with TSO, um, because I started in the mid-70s, um, but I think it happened in the early 80s, I think, with MTV. Um, bands seemed to become more celebrity-driven than musically-driven. And, uh, um, and also, um, there was a... When, um, I knew all the CEO, CEOs from you know, all the major labels, and the conventional wisdom was that once an artist reached a certain level of um, financial success, they lost the drive to create. But um, I'm also a huge fan of you know the Greek philosophers, and um, you know Aristotle, you know Solon said you know use logic and reason, and it'll always lead you to the truth, and. But what these labels were saying didn't hold up to logic and reason because, um, you know, Mozart, you know, Beethoven, um, well, not skip Mozart, Beethoven, um, Charles Dickens, Victor Hugo were all world famous, were all financially very rich, and they wrote great works of art when they were young, in their middle ages, and when they were old. And so I'm like, how come, you know, in the 1800s, you know, they could do it, but in the 1900s, they can't. And this is just my own personal theory. It was mass media. Um, even though everybody knew Beethoven's name, everybody knew his work, everybody knew Charles Dickens' name, everybody knew his work, Victor Hugo's name, they all knew his work. Um, because you didn't have you know, mass media, nobody knew what they looked like. So you know, Dickens could walk down the road, see somebody arguing with a pawn shop, and get an idea for a story. Victor Hugo could watch a, you know, a cop chasing a prisoner, get an idea for a story. You know, Beethoven could watch some young lovers, get an idea for a, you know, a symphony. Um, but the person I'm going to use, God bless, because he's now passed away, um, is you know Michael Jackson. You know, Michael Jackson, I think, was a musical genius. Um, but he became so famous that, um, as an artist, I think you get your inspiration to write and create by observing humanity. But Michael Jackson became so famous, he could no longer observe humanity because wherever he went, things would revolve around him. Again, I always use the exact same example. Um, if you, you know, had a Fourth of July party and you would say 15 years ago, and you invited, you know, a bunch of friends, um, and um, you know, one friend was a practical joker, you know, one friend was a little arrogant, you know. Um, the um, if you also invited Michael Jackson, when Michael Jackson walked into that room, um, the arrogant person wouldn't be arrogant, the rude person wouldn't be rude, the practical joker probably wouldn't tie Michael Jackson's shoes together. So Michael lost the ability to observe life, and you know his homes basically became gilded prisons. And to me, the band that I thought solved that problem was Pink Floyd. Like when you look at the wall, there's no pictures of the band it's all artwork to do with their rock opera and um and i this happened to be like seven or eight years ago but i was crossing the street in new york city and there was these two girls waiting with me at the light and one girl said to the other girl you know i came home last night and my boyfriend was so drunk he slapped me so hard that i just grabbed the can open and i ripped his chest wide open the next thing i know he's on the floor crying like a little baby and i'm like hey big tough guy 
where's the big tough guy now? And I'm like, ladies, could you slow down? Because I want to write all this dialogue down. But if that had been Michael Jackson or Elton John, they never would have said that. So um, in, in TSO, you know, some of the rules are, um, you know, always bring in youngsters and let the older members mentor them and uh, and also always protect the lead singers and also always allow the artist to have a private life as well as a professional life because I think everybody, when they're kids, they imagine they would love, you know, total fame um, until you get it because, you know, you know, I do know people that can't go anywhere without completely disguising themselves, and they hate it. And um, it's just unhealthy, I think, as a human being, you know, not to be able to just go to a McDonald's by yourself, you know, with a friend and have a burger without, you know, constantly being disturbed. Um, and, and again, by the way, if I'm not answering anybody's question or if I'm going off of, uh, um, you know, uh, a subject, uh, don't hesitate to hit, you know, whatever numbers and reel me in. Okay. okay, and our next question comes from Nick Sorter with South Florida Sun Sentinel. Okay. Rick? Nick Sorter? You might have your phone on mute. We're not able to hear you. You were right. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> She's ESP, too. To the damn question. <laughs> um, you're, you're welcome to... Uh, to uh, Expound on this one a lot too. What what um what do you see in the public uh, perceptions of Christmas and people's attitudes and Christmas habits? Have they changed much over the years, and has it affected uh, how you write and how you tell the story? Nick, I I, I apologize, Nick. Um, I, I can hardly hear him. How's that? Um, uh, can we try it again? Better? That that's, it's a little better, sir. Yes. Yeah. Um, talk overall about um people and their habits toward Christmas, during Christmas, and has that changed much over the years, and does it affect how you tell the story? Um, well, in the arenas, uh, we we tend to release it in, you know, we, I'll give a perfect example, you know, Beethoven's Last Night or um, Lost Christmas Eve. Um, when you buy the albums, it comes with the whole story told in prose, so you can read it in one sitting. And then it's retold in a rhyming pentameter, which is what we use in the concerts. And then, but when we do it in the arenas, um, I shorten the um, uh, poetry. You can buy the album, and we call it the Shakespeare version, where you can just like kick back and you know listen to the whole thing. Or if you have a long ride, you can do it that way. But because our audience is so diverse, I call it the John Wayne factor. When I was a kid, you know, watching John Wayne movies. I didn't want to watch him, you know, you know, kissing Maureen O'Hara. I wanted to watch him shooting the bad guys who were hunting the bank. And, you know, when families are there, you know, the 10 and 11-year-olds, you know, they want the moving trusses. They want the pyro. They want the lasers. And, you know, but the adults want the stories and other people want the songs. So we adjust it so that we don't want anyone to ever get bored. And so um, depending on the audience, um, uh you know, the arenas, we do it a certain way. Um, when we do it as a radio broadcast with all the narration, we do it another way. And um, and we just, we try to um, just always, you know, keep it interesting. And 
there's again there's something uh you know magical about music um like uh when we on the Nightcastle album one of the reasons uh we put Carmina Barana on there was um the first time I heard Carmina Barana was in Germany in the 70s um the lyrics were written in the dark ages but by a very a barbarian monk who's hidden behind a wall because they might have been too secular. They discovered in the 1800s. Um, Carl Orff rewrote the music of the 1930s. And when I heard it, it just blew me away. And the audience, for lack of a better term, was upper crust blue bloods. Um, then in um, uh, I, 1980s, I went to see Ozzy Osbourne before Ozzy took the stage. You know, Carmina Burana starts in Latin place goes nuts and in the 1990s a friend asked me if I wanted to see a rap band in some inner city, inner city club before the band took the stage Carmina Brana comes on the kids go nuts and I'm willing to bet a lot of money that the average Ozzy Osbourne fan does not speak fluent Latin but here's this song you know lyrics written in the 800s you know music written in the 1930s that's effortlessly, effortlessly jumping the Atlantic Ocean and centuries you know to blow away you know um, you know, blue bloods in Germany, suburban kids on Long Island, and inner city kids in this club, and you know that's you know the magic of music, and um, there's something universal about it. You know, um, you could be having you know, um, you know, the most tense day of your life, and you hear Pachelbel's Canon, and it just calms you down. And or um, again, but if you need to get up in the morning, <laughs> put on Carmina Burana. It gets you going. And, um, hello? Hello? Yes, yes we can hear you. Okay. I just heard a big beep. I didn't know what happened. <laughs> right. And we'll go ahead and go with our next caller, Gary Graff. Hey, Gary. Hey again, Paul. Yep. Go ahead. Um, so one of, one of the dangling pieces, you know, in the in the TSO canon right now is Nightcastle. What what kind of plans do you have for for bringing that to the stage at some point? Um, we're actually designing that. We've been designing that for like the last five years, and it's um, it's the most ambitious, um, especially because it, it goes as you know, it starts on the beach and goes all around the world, all throughout history, and I would say it's about sixty percent done on its uh the production drawing board and um we had a couple of special effects that are key to the show um the problem is we can't get them approved by the government and um because some of these kids that we have working for us um are literally light years ahead of the regulators that have to approve it and um and I was actually there once when they were trying to explain it to them. Um, we've actually designed this, um, you know, the ticker tape thing that goes around Times Square that says the news. Um, we've built one that's like 20 feet high that has um, uh, runs on propane gas, and you mix in different chemicals, and it changes the color, and it's in real time. So you could sign Gary Graff, and this, you know, 20 foot high, you know, 100 foot wide screen. Gary Graff would appear in flames and pictures could appear in flames and the weird thing is it's probably the safest special effects we've ever built but you know the people that have to approve it don't understand it so they won't approve it you know they approve um, uh, 
they're called waterfalls. That's when the showers of sparks and, um, you know, gunpowder and, you know, mixed with potassium comes down. You know, that's, you know, ten times more dangerous, but um, that they prove instantaneously. And um, and we always err on the side of safety. I mean, I'm knocking wood across myself as I say this, but in, you know, all the years of touring, we haven't had an accident yet. And, um, and as Gary, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, I apologize to the ladies on the phone. I'm a pyro whore, <laughs> and the uh, but there was um you know one time we were playing a building and um the uh, they wouldn't let us bring the propane tanks into the arena, but they said that we could put them in the parking lot and run cables to um, the effects, and I desperately wanted to use this effect, but with all these hoses. All it would take is a road case running over a hose and a spark, and I have a flamethrower with an unlimited amount of, you know, ammunition. So even though the fire marshals had given us the go-ahead, I pulled the plug. Because, you know, the bottom line is it, it doesn't matter, you know, how great the effect is if, if God forbid, anybody ever gets hurt. And um, which is also one of the reasons why we delayed our first tour of Europe. Um, it was supposed to happen, I think, in um you know, uh, 210, but in 209, um, uh, Madonna's staging collapsed in France, and um, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the cities started to cut back on maintenance. You know, after the uh, banking crisis, and um, you know, uh, you know, we trust the cities, but we actually double check ourselves, and um, you know, that's why a lot of times we'll send in our own engineers just to double check to make sure that they can um, that the uh, the buildings can support the weight, and um, and you know so far we've never had to cancel a show. The closest we came was um, I think it was Green Bay, um, and the the ceiling could support the weight of the show, but um, nobody thought of snow. <laughs> and two nights before they had a blizzard, and the weight from the snow it wouldn't take the weight of our show and the snow. But our guardian angels came in, it rained, all the snow went away, and the show went on. But, again, Night Castle, um, that's the one I'm dying to do. But um, it's it has to be done right. And um, I, I think I feel about it like, um, you know, Macintosh felt about Titanic. You know, that movie came out, I think, one or two years late. But he didn't... He didn't want to, you know, release it if it was wrong. And, you know, I feel the same way about Night Castle. I just wanted to, like, be just, uh, you know, take your breath away, you know, um, just, you know, blow every, you know, sense that you have. But, um, you know, God willing and barring another economic meltdown, hopefully we'll get that on the road in the near future. Right. And our next question comes from Alan Scully. Hey, Alan, how are you, sir? I again. Well, I think I'm going to follow up something where they asked about, you know, the, and you explained about the changing musicians. And one thing with Christmas Attic, I think you had seven featured vocalists, ones who did solos on the album way back when. Right. I'm curious how many of those you still have in the touring group or what you've done to kind of uh, match up the vocal parts that you had on the album to what you're going to do live. It's um, basically what kind of happens is 
when people, uh, um, especially the youngs, when you're younger, your voice is, it goes higher and doesn't have as many low notes. And as they get older, you get more baritone and less tenor. And so we adjust it that way. And an, another thing we allow to happen in TSO is when I say we allow the band to breathe, um, I don't want anyone to ever be on that flight deck, you know, for the money. Um, you know, the only reason to be on that flight deck is you don't want to be alive if you're not on that flight deck. Because, you know, I won't name the band, but there was a band I saw like two years ago, three years ago. And they'd been around for like over 40 years. But you could tell they were on the stage because they kept looking at their watches. And you could tell they were just doing it for the paycheck. And so, um, like Alex Skolnick is a great guitar player, a great metal guitar player in Testament, but he loves jazz, you know, so um, he was with us for a while, and then he went out and did his jazz thing, and and then um, he ran out of money, then he came back, and and now he's off doing his jazz thing again. Um, and or and, and also, when the kids join, whenever anybody under 25 always asks them, you know, if you could be doing anything in five years, what would it be? Because um, Ahmed Erdogan actually once asked me, he said, when I was describing what I was going to try to do, he said, Paul, describe it in bands. And I said, okay, it's, you know, The Who, you know, the rock opera, you know, meets Queen, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, meets, you know, Pink Floyd's light show, meets The Yardbirds. And he gave me this really weird look going, The Yardbirds? You know, the band from the 60s, they had a couple of hits with, uh, I think, For Your Love and Train Kept a Rolling All Night Long. But from that one little band in England, you know, came Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, you know, Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart, um, you know, Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes. And, you know, so if there's band members, there's band members, you know, that have been with us since day one and have never left. Um, there's band members like, um, you know, Katrina Chester, who, um, you know, she joined at 19 and, you know, she said, Paul, one day they're going to do a Janis Joplin show on Broadway, and I have to be Janis. And two years later, Love Janis came out, and you know she said, can I go for it? And if I don't get it, can I come back? And actually, we hired her a publicist to help her get the gig. And I saw her a couple of years ago, and she was celebrating her 10th year of doing Janis Joplin. And it was even funny because when she got – she called me the night she got the gig. She goes, Paul, you're not going to believe this. I got the gig. And Paul, listen – they're going to pay me. Do you hear this? Pay me to stand on stage, smoke cigarettes, drink whiskey, and sing Janis Joplin. And, you know, so, you know, if, you, if you're at home in TSO, make it your home. If you want, if you can use it as a stepping stone, you know, um, like um, Rebecca wanted to be an actress, and she was able to get a, a part on Glee. And, um, and I, I do believe she's still doing that. And... And again, if, you know, Lee ever closes down and she wants to come back home, come back home. And our next question comes from Chuck Yarbrough. Hi, Chuck. Hey. All right. Here we are back again. Um, I kind of want to go at it this way. You started out at this as a musician. You're a musician first. But TSO is a huge spectacle. And I know this is kind of a simplistic thing, but how do you balance the marriage between the music and the spectacle and make sure – that one or the other does not become an afterthought? Oh, actually, it's, it's a very good question, and um, it's one that we are constantly on top of. Um, 
because as TSO has gone on, the musicianship has actually gotten better and better. Um, like Vitaly Capri, you know, who won the gold medal in the Soviet Union for piano playing. Um, the uh, um, if the production is not as good as the music, you lose an opportunity, you know, to take the concert to another level. If the production is better than the musicians, then it's a farce. So you have to be very, very, very careful that the production, the visual productions, and the, and the musical productions advance in tandem, and um, and you, you simply you, you constantly have to stay on top of it. And you know, we're just you know I'm really lucky that people like Derek Wheeland and Al Petrelli, who are just like on every single note, you know, um, just you know not just great musicians, you know, great musical directors, and um, you know if um, you know they hear a wrong note, you know. There's an early sound check the next day, and they're going through that song over and over and over again. And um, the and also, TSO was all live. There was no tapes, you know, running, playing music. Um, nobody's lip syncing. Um, the uh, and I think you know that is also part part of the magic. And I and I and I feel this, you know, more strongly every year. Um, the internet's been a great thing. You know, again, people that. You know, in Nigeria, normally they wouldn't have access to books, have access. But it's also, I think it's helped to isolate people. You know, people go to work, they sit in a little cubicle. But then worse, they go home. And, you know, um, again, I read a paper like a year ago where they uh, it said in the 70s and the 80s, the average kid spent, um, you know, uh, like 15 hours a week outside playing with other kids. Now the average kid spends 45 minutes outside a week. Because when they play baseball, they do it on the Internet. When they play football, they do it on the Internet. And again, my favorite is Farmville, where you plant imaginary carrots and imaginary dirt to feed you imaginary rabbits. Um, but um, anything, human beings are social by nature. And I think anything that gets, you know, people together, um, especially of, um, and, and not just gets them together, but not in niches. Um, it's, you know, um, you know, a lot of times you, you go to a certain concert and it's just, it's just one group of people or sports, it'll, you know, it'll be just guys or, you know, ice skating, it'll be just girls. The nice thing about Trans-Siberian Orchestra, it's, you see everybody there. And I, you know, um, I've been doing arena rock for a lot of, um, a lot of years and I've never left the TSO concert and had to break up a fist fight. And, um, it's, it, you know, people leave in a good mood and, um, and I just think, you know, you know, that's important these days. And our next question comes from Jim Abbott. Here we go, Jim. All set, sir. Oh, boy. You know, I don't, I don't remember uh, clicking in, so you know, I'm, I, I sort of don't have uh, have anything prepared. So I might yield my time to uh, to the next questioner. Okay. Our next question back. comes. Go ahead. Our next question comes from Stephanie Schultz. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. Oh, hi. I, I already asked you a question. <laughs> I'm just okay. listening, taking notes. Okay. Enjoying it. Thank you. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Are we okay there, people? 
Yes, we're just uh, clearing the queue real quickly to see who's still in there. Okay. Uh, a couple people might have hit star one accidentally. No problem. Um, yes, we have Jeff still on. And our next caller uh, is Jeff Wilkin. Okay. Real Go ahead, Jeff. Real quick, Paul. I know that uh, TSO is, uh, again, they're uh, all over the place this time of year. Is there Are there two touring bands these days, or is it more than that? Um, it's it's two touring bands, um, but only in the winter. And right. um, the uh, and it happened in a funny way, just because um, you know the first year we toured it, um, it exploded. And I grew up in New York City, and you know I never wanted to see a Christmas Carol, you know, outside of you know November. Or to me, the holidays end the last weekend after New Year's, where everybody has to go back to work. And and I know a lot of shows like The Nutcracker and, you know, um, Christmas Carol would run in October and end in February, but it just didn't feel right to me. And so I told William Morris that TSO will never do the holiday rock operas outside, um, you know, the holiday season. But then um, they brought one of my own words back to haunt me. They said, but, Paul, you said TSO is owned by the fans, and if you stick by that rule, a lot of people will never, ever see these concerts live. And then um, somebody else said, well, Paul, you've actually got 80 members. You could split the band in half, and you're still five times bigger than your average bear, and um, you could actually reproduce you know, the concerts where they're not missing anything. And I'll be totally honest, you know, the first year we tried this, I was petrified just because no rock band had ever split in half, even, you know, large ones like Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, um, Leonard Skinner. Um, it just had never been done before. Um, but we decided to roll the dice and, um, you know, have one half of the band go east, one half go west. And But thank God the fans understood what we were trying to do and... Um, they uh and it worked and and so I'm just eternally grateful and so this way again if you see it's a wonderful life in June it's still a great movie if you read a Christmas Carol in you know August it's still a great book but in the holiday season it has a little bit you know more magic to it and you know that's the rule in TSO you know like when we're recording the song if I realize that if I lower the key half a step It'll make it one half of one percent better. We'll throw the old one in the garbage and re-record it. You just got to do everything you can to make it have the you know the most emotional impact. But um, when we play Vakin, um, you know, um, next summer, you know, the whole band will be on stage. It'll be you know four guitar players, you know, two drummers, you know, uh, four keyboard players, um, twenty-four lead singers. It'll be. You know, I love it when I get to put the whole band on stage. It's because uh, it's just a, it's just it's a juggernaut. It's just so, um, uh, and especially when you get to hear you know 24 lead vocals together, because I, I worship Queen, um, but um, you know, you know, obviously one of the problems they have is um, on Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, they don't have enough lead singers to recreate, you know, that um, the middle part of Bohemian Rhapsody and. Um, which is, but like when we had, uh, when John Anderson from Yes came out with us one year, um, uh, the only time Roundabout has ever been played with all the harmonies was those four shows where John Anderson played with the uh, TSO. And uh, it was just, 
there's there's a magic to live and um you know and i've been seeing live music dying as you see more and more bands you know lip sync and and what's even i find even scarier is you know i was backstage at a show a year ago and i'm watching all these tape recorders going and half the music wasn't even live and it's just like you know we're one step away from it just being a movie but um you know uh Again, you watch somebody on a tightrope with a net, it's cool. You watch someone on a tightrope with that net, it's even cooler. And um, it's, you know, uh, and also, you know, knowing that you're not lip syncing, that you got to play the right note, it keeps you on your toes. Once again, if you would like to ask a question or have a comment, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. This will place you in the question queue. And our last question comes from John Thornborough with FMW. Okay. And by the way, since this is the last question, if anybody remembers anything or something I said didn't make any sense, please feel free to get in contact with our people, and I'll catch up on whatever question I missed. But go ahead, John. Thank you for your time and for, for being with us for so long. Oh, our pleasure. Um, you, as you mentioned, this will be TSO's first time to play the Christmas Attic live. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that album, if you can put your mind back 16 years and tell us a little bit more about the genesis of it. Oh, um, the, uh, my, you know, um, my daughter had just been born. And, uh, uh, you know, I didn't have my first child until I was in my 40s. And um, the, uh, so, um, you know, when I was writing that story, you know, um, it was just, you know, seeing Christmas through her eyes, and it was just um, the uh, and uh, I can see the anticipation. You know, it's just it just brought me back to the past. And um, the uh, but you, again, you want to keep it ma- magical and, and and adventuresome. And you know, that's why I got I like the idea of the attic. You know, because you know everybody's been in an attic, and everybody knows people throw things in an attic. And um, and an attic is like a built-in adventure land, and it's, uh, you know, you never know what you're going to find there. And, you know, um, that's why I think why shows like Antique Roadshow are, you know, popular. And um, you don't know if it's a paint-by-number or if it's a real Rembrandt. And it's, uh, and you know, so it's basically it's a bunch of little adventure stories, you know, with with a happy ending. And and I would say of all the rock operas I wrote, it's it's probably the lightest story. Um because I have a tendency to, um, you know, uh, you know, write dark. Because the darker it gets, the happier the ending. Um, but uh, the, um, you know, this one again is more like, um, if I had to think of something, I would say, you know, the Nightmare Before Christmas, where it's it's fun for adults, it's fun for kids. But um, you know, I knew Beethoven's last night was very heavy. Um, Lost Christmas Eve is very heavy, and um, the. Uh, the Christmas attic is it's just lighthearted adventure and I'm I'm honestly basically taking my cues from um you know Jack Warner um because let's face it I mean I'll I'll use the D word we're in a depression I don't care what anybody says and um when Warner Brothers uh they had just borrowed a ton of money right before the crash and at first they were making movies about the depression and Jack Warner goes we got to stop writing he goes everybody knows we're in a depression 
and then they started making, you know, Robin Hood and and Disney made Snow White and, you know, let people escape their problems and, you know, give them hope. And um, because I think that's what people need right now is hope. And um, it's, uh, you know, again, everybody knows, you know, the world's a mess financially, you know, all these crazy things going on. But, again, I'm a firm believer in happy endings, all those Frank Capra movies when I was young. And um, and also because um, it's time, you know, after 15 years for uh, TSO to do its first um, straight concert tour. We never intended to put it off so long, but um, we really felt that we couldn't do it until we had, um, you know, done all the uh, rock operas from the trilogy. This is the end of the question and answer session for today. Before we conclude, conclude, we'll ask Paul if he has any closing remarks. Paul? Oh, no, I just want to thank everybody, you know, for all the patience and all the support over the years. And, um, again, if it wasn't for you guys getting the word out, you know, it's, uh, again, I would have had to get a real job, and I'd have been in big trouble. And, um, and, and again, especially a lot of you guys I've talked to since day one. So um, my thanks to you, and... Um, and hopefully we'll be having this discussion in another 30 years. That's Paul O'Neill, founder of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You can find more information on the TSO out at trans-siberian.com, in particular the tour dates page. Uh, the show's in Pittsburgh, uh, 3 o'clock and 7.30 at the Consol Energy Center. Uh, and for those not familiar, there's actually two units of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra that go about the country. So um, from year to year even, you don't see the same musicians, uh, which is kind of cool. Also... Um, the show this year is completely brand new uh so even if you've been there in years past and are kind of used to it even at that they still change it up but this year is a completely new show so it's going to be really spectacular to see uh, without a question so again console energy center they're moving into tampa indianapolis orlando so all over the east coast and west coast of the united states you'll be able to catch the tso just in time for the holidays you can find more information about us at ironcityrocks.com, facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks, twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks. You're always welcome to email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, comments, criticism, suggestions for future guests, suggestions for topics you'd like to uh, hear, bands you're interested in. Let us know. We'd love to, to make the show what people want to hear. So we appreciate you listening, and uh, we wish you a great holiday. <laughs>